Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Audition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I'm your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA, that's Musical Theater College Auditions, and today we have got an EGOT-nominatable show lined up for you. Brandon Victor Dixon is on the show to share some great wisdom and insight from his years in the business as both an actor and a producer. We talk about his exciting career and some good stuff on the nature of art and commerce and advocacy. Um, You may notice on this episode that your very own favorite podcast host was playing injured um, for this interview. Uh, This was right in the middle of a really rough two-week stint for me where I basically caught back-to-back diseases. I had like a really tough stomach flu, and then basically as soon as I got better from that, I caught hand, foot, mouth from my daughter, who has now brought this disease home. I don't know if you've heard of this disease, hand, foot, mouth. It happens in daycares for the third time this season just wild um and sadly that second week was also in conjunction with elizabeth being away doing a concert so it was a very tough week for your favorite podcast host he appreciates the sympathies that you're all sending uh his way um i don't know why he's talking to the third person but that's what he's doing uh for those of our current seniors out there who are about to do uh new york city unifieds i'm just gonna say let this story be a little bit of precaution please be careful out there um our pediatrician said this is the worst winter for like normal diseases that she's ever seen um even if you're not particularly covid nervous maybe you're you're many times boosted and you've had it recently so you're not going to ask who cares about the disease i think it still might be a good time to practice some just good general virus hygiene with masking and hand washing you know make sure also that you're keeping your immune system up with sleep and you know good nutrition and exercise and all those kind of things whatever you can do to try to keep yourself healthy and not go through the two weeks that i've just gone through um and of course, that goes for all of our listeners out there, not just the ones who are about to audition for New York City Unifieds, but you know, of course, I know many of our seniors have um, this upcoming audition as well. Just a little friendly PSA from your MTCA coach. Um, but on our end, we're all recovering. We're thinking healthy thoughts. We're trying to plow forward with a productive 2023, and I'm wishing the same to all of you. And with that, let's jump into this episode with the wonderful Brandon Victor Dixon. Well, we are honored to be joined by Brandon Victor Dixon today. Brandon is an actor and a producer and an advocate. He's a graduate of Columbia University, where he has a BA in theater. Uh, He's been on Broadway in shows like The Color Purple, where he's nominated for a Tony, Uh, Motown, where he got a Grammy nomination, Shuffle Along, along with MTCA director 
Leo Ash Evans, um, in Hamilton, where he replaced Leslie Odom, the Scottsboro Boys, where he got a hundred different nominations. He's been on TV in like Jesus Christ Superstar, live in concert, where he played Judas to the great John Legend. He's also can be seen in Modern Love and Power. Uh, and as a producer, his company, Walk Run Flies, produced multiple works, including the Tony Award winning Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Um, as an advocate, he is the co-founder of the We Are Foundation, which is a nonprofit turning art into action. Uh, Brandon, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? I'm well, thank you. Uh, happy to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. And I'm going to start you off with the same question I ask most of our guests, which is just to start us off, if you can, thinking back to 16, 17-year-old Brandon, sort of what was you, your your mission statement, or if you were precocious enough to have one of those, or what was your sort of plan with college and how you saw yourself getting into this industry um, back then? Uh, you know, my plan was very practical. Uh I, I was very fortunate. I knew from a young age that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and my initial focus was Broadway. Uh, so, you know, when deciding about college, I knew I wanted, I, I decided I needed to be either in Los Angeles or in New York or maybe Chicago because of their, you know, their, their, their theater mm-hmm. market. Um, and I, I decided on New York. Um, and really, it was for me, it was about being in the place where the art I wanted to professionally be a part of was being created and making sure that I could go to school in an environment where I could be auditioning mm-hmm. um, and trying to break into the industry while I was in school because I didn't want to graduate and then have to be juggling figuring out how to maintain living a life while also having time to audition and learn how to audition and figure out how to become a professional and then get into a professional company. So that's why I wanted to be in New York and be kind of engaging in my professional education while I was engaging in my, mm-hmm. my general education. And skill set wise, so did you know musical theater from the jump that musical theater was a goal? Um, theater, you know, theater, uh, yeah. but, but, I, but, but, but in my um, education, I had done a, a lot of musicals. So I was, familiar with how it worked, the sensibility, and I, and mm-hmm. I had a great appreciation for acting um, in, and acting and performance in musicals. Because my primary education was Shakespeare mm-hmm. and musicals. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that, that, that's, that's where I, I, I operated primarily. And, you know, with choosing a BA and obviously a very academic BA, was there any consciousness to like what we'll talk about in the later half of the show, a little bit more the producing and the advocacy? Was there any consciousness of like, what you might want to do in theater other than being an actor in your education? No, with the educational component, I, I ended up as a theater major, but I started as an econ major. I was an econ mm-hmm. major with a film minor. Um, so the thing for me in, I applied to Juilliard and to Columbia, um, but I applied to Columbia early. And so when I, I was accepted to Columbia a week before my audition to Juilliard, mm-hmm. so I canceled my audition and I went to Columbia because for me, I I wanted to go to a liberal arts institution as opposed to a conservatory because mm-hmm. uh, one I had interests outside of uh, just the theater arts and also I understood as uh, an actor and as a performer we are conduits we are vessels and we are channeling and synthesizing information different information and different experiences so the broader my education the more uh, people, the different kinds of people who are interested in different kinds of things that I interact with and that I get to know, the greater the the reservoir of, of information and energy I get to siphon into my artistic, my artistic resource, my artistic tool, mm-hmm. and the, the, the more depth I have as a performer and as an actor. So that's, 
why I did that. And I was, um, I was an econ major initially just to give me an, uh, and a a film major to give me another set of skills and to introduce me to a new, another genre of art. Um, but all the while I was taking classes in the theater department Mm -hmm. and I was performing in productions on, on campus. So I was continuing my theater education. It just was not the focus of my degree. Um, and what ended up happening is that I left school and then I, I left school after my first semester senior year to go mm-hmm. join the company of the Lion King. Mm-hmm. And when I returned to the city uh, to finish my degree, um, I did not want to go back into calculus. So I let go of my <laughs> econ. I let go of my econ major. And I had amassed 96% of the theater credits through my general study. Uh So I just pivoted to the theater degree because it was the easiest thing for me to finish out my full degree in one semester. And so how does Lion King happen? Are you just auditioning with everyone else? I mean, did you have an agent at that point? How did you find your way to the national tour from college? So the summer of my, after my freshman year, during my freshman year, I had auditioned for an acapella group on campus, and I, I didn't end up joining the group, but one of the members who was in it was a woman named Donna Vivino. She was the original Cosette, mm-hmm. uh, young mm-hmm. Cosette in, in Les Miserables. And she was like, look, uh, I bumped into her one night on campus. She was like, if you're interested in doing this business, I really think you should, and I recommend you uh, meet my, my manager. Mm-hmm. That summer, I met her manager and ended up, you know, I, I auditioned for her and ended up signing with her. And from that point on, a summer after my freshman year, I started auditioning throughout the year. So I was going on auditions for, you know, my 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 um my open calls to Rent and uh, Lion King and all you know all, all sorts of things. Not have to be tours of uh, ragtime, and so so that's how I got my first. I got a manager, not an agent, but my manager was able to get me the auditions, and and that's how I booked Lion King. Totally. And so then, all right, so you, you take that national tour, you come back, you then finish school. Yes. And then is it a pretty steady progress? Or are you one of those lucky people who basically are like, and then I did a Broadway show, and then I took a second off and another Broadway show? Were there some of those fallow periods down there where you're like, oh, God, I'm not working? What is this? Oh, there were definitely fallow periods. I mean, yeah. So I, I came back from Lion King. I, I finished school. Um, but I also, I, I, or rather, I came back from Lion King, and I booked The Color Purple. Mm-hmm. I booked it a couple, like a month or two after The Lion King um, and started to do the out of town for that. Was on Broadway, did The Color Purple, you know, got nominated for a Tony. So, you know, so th- things are... Yeah, 24 at this point, 23, 24. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Woo. So, uh, yeah, this is 2005 on 23, 24, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things are, are kind of steadily progressing, certainly. Um, and then, you know, I went from The Lion King, I, I auditioned for, I booked uh, uh, the Ray Charles musical they were developing at that time. Mm-hmm. So I went out to Pasadena Playhouse in LA and started working on that, came back from that and then started doing a, a leap of faith. So, so I got into this like reading workshop era. So you can't talk to me about follow periods, then, Brand. Well, You're no, having I'm, too much good here. This is still too good. These are all these are, meetings, these are workshops. Well, you have to remember, yeah. readings and workshops, whilst they're great because they expose you to new material and new people, they pay you five dollars. That's true. That is so true. You know, you have to you have to be living in New York City while mm-hmm. you are not in a mainstream job, right? Um, and what ended up happening is I, 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 I was developing. Uh, the the Scottsboro Boys and the Ray Charles musical 
Um, we we did this Gospel Boys off Broadway, mm -hmm. uh, 2009. Brilliant production, brilliant thing I got to be a part of. Um, but then both the Gospel Boys and Ray Charles were coming to Broadway at the same time, and I had to pick between one. Oof. And because I had been developing Ray Charles for so long, mm -hmm. and I was I was like I was a part of the team over here. They had kind of welcomed me into the creative team. I chose Ray Charles, mm -hmm. and then the investors for Ray Charles, uh, their businesses went under in 2008, uh, mm -hmm. the financial crisis. So that show never went to Broadway, and uh, Scotch World Boys did, and I didn't get to go with it. So mm -hmm. I was in this place where I had two Broadway shows, and then I had none. And uh -huh. the one I and the one I gave up got to go on without me. The actor who replaced me got nominated for a Tony Award, oh. and I was just in this place of, and I had been nominated for for that. I mean, people say it's one of my greatest performances ever. Yep. I've been. Got, I see Olivier. I see Drama yeah. Desk. I see Lucille Hotel, Outer Critic Circle. You got a bunch, yeah. So to not do it and then to see it go. I mean, the show had challenges uh, on Broadway, but the you know the actor got nominated, and I love the actor. He's a good friend of mine. Like we. Mm -hmm. We've shared roles and done things before. Um, but that was a challenging period for me because also it felt like I things had been aligned. I'd been making uh, decisions according to a philosophy of life and things were moving. And mm -hmm. and then I made a decision and things were falling apart. And, and mm -hmm. I was in that period for a couple of years, you know, between 2009 and 2014, really, of not being sure what was next or how to kind of get back on track. Um and are you That's doing any, are you waiting tables? Are you doing any survival jobs? Or are you mostly still like, well, I'm still no, working no, in the I'm, I'm, you know, cause like I, I was very careful to make sure that my overhead in New York city was low. I was living econ in major. It's an econ major in you. You had it. Yes. I mean, I was li li living in a studio. Uh, my rent was no more than a thousand dollars a month. Like mm -hmm. I was, I was very much trying. And this is even like, cause I, 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 at this point I've done, I've done Lion King. I've done color purple on Broadway. Like, mm -hmm. so I've had periods that have been flush. But I did not expand a great deal of, mm -hmm. of my overhead, you know, during those periods. I, I held on to it because I, you know, just uh, to be safe, to be self, uh, be conscious of uh, and responsible about money. Um, and so I, I didn't have to do a lot of that, but I, but I did do some of it, you know, throughout these periods. Uh, one of the jobs that I, that I would do, because the thing that's tricky is if you have a job that occupies too much of your time, you're not available for auditions mm -hmm. or you can't go do the so i was i was a referee for adult intramural sports league here in oh, the of zog brandon sports. how did i not run into you zog sports i used to play my God. <laughs> so, come on so yeah i was i was a i was a dodgeball referee i was a soccer mm -hmm. referee so you know i would just i would I, I would do things like that um and every now and again maybe i'm a private gig here or there i could go to do things like that um uh, slide in a bartend here or there but those mm -hmm. are the the kinds of things I would do as survival jobs and make sure I picked up enough work that I could keep on unemployment, stuff like that. Uh -huh. But consciously really trying to keep your overhead low so you're available. So you're not yes, working because, week because working. particularly in the early on, it's just like, you know, you things can be inconsistent. And I never yeah. wanted to be in a position where I had to take an artistic job that I was uh -huh. not connected to or inspired by. I'd rather do a regular job than take yeah. an artistic job that does not inspire me. Totally agree with that. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, you had such a breadth of a career. I mean, of course, it helps that you booked so big so early. Um, but you've really, it seems like I had to participate in a bunch of different kinds of shows and experiences. You know, um, I know a little bit from Leo about like Shuffle Along and some of the craziness of the getting new pages and constant changes and that kind of stuff versus like a Hamilton, which I imagine you're stepping into a machine that 
runs beautifully and works and smoothly. Is there, you know, did you really enjoy sort of new work? Did you enjoy the sort of originating Broadway things? Like what, what was the most exciting artistically to work on? New work is always the most exciting thing for me to work on. Excuse me. Generally speaking, that's, I'm, I'm only looking to, um, to do new work and to originate things. I'm mm-hmm. rarely inclined to uh, return to a role I've done before, and mm-hmm. I'm rarely inclined to replace. Uh, in fact, I turned Hamilton down three times before I before I accepted. And uh, was it just the Brinks truck that got you, or what made you decide I am going to end up the doing Brinks this? The Brinks truck certainly helped. The, the Brinks truck certainly helped nudge my agents to be like, I need you to Are three you sure? Okay, yeah. so... <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was like, I also had friends in the industry that were like, "I, you should do this." <laughs> so it's a hell of a role. For, for, if I didn't role. say it, this I'm is, so Burr, grateful that I did. You replaced Leslie Odom as Burr on Broadway for those who are not uh, following. Yeah. yeah, and I'm so grateful that I did. I had a wonderful time, and it was a wonderful growth experience as as an artist because the uh, the, the playing field that Lynn and Lackamore created is just mm-hmm. highly fertile. Uh, you know, as, as an actor, there's a lot of material to pull from and to create your own unique version of a thing. So, so yes, that 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 that, that was really it was wonderful. Um, were there any yeah it was, anything fun Hamilton stories or any things of like the experience of what it was to step into those shoes? I mean, look, I I, I mean, my I think a creation that came out of Hamilton that kind of still exists today. Like I started a thing. Um, it's not as, it's not as prominent anymore as it was then, but I started a thing called, called Burr's corner mm-hmm. when I was doing Hamilton because I knew, you know, I knew how, how much of a phenomenon it was and how, how well people knew the show. So when I got into the show and Hamilton's the kind of show, like it's set to a clip track. So uh-huh. like, there's no missing an entrance and they, the orchestra catches up with you or there's, uh-huh. a, if you make a mistake, it's gone. It's over. There's no fix the train in it. is going to leaving the station. That's it. <laughs> and and I so I knew in this show more than any other show because the album had been out already for years. Like if I make a mistake, people are gonna know immediately that mm-hmm. I messed up. So I would regularly, as soon as I messed something up, I would run off stage and I would get on my IG and I'd be like, okay, Burr's Corner, which is like Winnie the Pooh's Corner, Pooh's Corner. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Burr's Corner. All right. I was supposed to say this, but instead I said, I don't know what happened. But all right, I own it. We'll fix it tomorrow. That, it feels a little like Shakespeare in that way of like, you know, you could turn and like half the crowd is like, I know I could finish this speech. I could finish to be <laughs> yeah. or not to be. I'm like, you could finish this uh-huh. for me, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> but like, I just started doing it on Broadway. It was fun. Uh, what about that? That Pence moment? I was only in researching this. I was remembering, oh, my God, that was you who that like for, for those who remember that like viral moment um, where like when Pence comes to see the show, this is right after the election and like you read this little speech to him. It just occurred to me in looking back of like, Pence did have this weird moment of patriotism over party or whatever. I don't, know, like, I don't know if I can call that patriotism over party. Well, I, don't know. Well, I mean, he had a moment of, of reason over, um, I don't know, insanity, maybe. Spent the night <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> but I'm saying, is it from the night in the theater? Do you, do you give yourself credit for it? That's what I want to know. I'm like, not unlike a Jefferson or, a, you know, Hamilton choosing Jefferson over Burr or something. You know, I, that that incident was was very interesting and all and, and everything that followed it, I think, was, was very interesting as well. As well. I mean, I, I, it's one of those things. I think it just, uh, it highlights... It highlights an interesting, interesting, contradictory, willing, contradictory nature of some of us as as Americans, or as human beings, to mm-hmm. to you know denounce the lifestyle or the existence of 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 our fellow citizens, while also 
you know, fully, full heartedly wanting to desire and participate in sharing artistic experiences with them and, and sharing artistic experiences that they are creating for a community. It's just, just, it's an odd, you know, mental dichotomy, um, social dissonance uh, Mm -hmm. that we have as, as a society sometimes. And was that like, I mean, I know that was um, viral for on talk shows or whatever, a few days or whatever. Was that a moment where like you're getting recognized by people who aren't even theater fans or people like, oh my God, Brandon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, at least I have found in general that yes, people people recognize me from that. Um, so I get recognized from shows and I get recognized from that incident. Mm-hmm. And I imagine this a little bit from NBC's Jesus Christ Superstar must have been a, a, a big moment in your career where people are seeing you who maybe aren't always Broadway fans aren't always coming to New York, et cetera. Was, was that a, um, in terms of the way you approach that material and talking about the different breadth of your career, you know, was it anything different to that experience being filmed and, or maybe being different because it's filled with literal pop stars as opposed to necessarily theater people. Did you feel like that, that the way you approach that work changed at all? Um, it only, not really. Cause they really designed it theatrically and they designed the process theatrically as well, like a mm-hmm. live, uh, production so but i think it did uh because you're not with broadway shows you're work you're really working your way into it working your way up to it you mm-hmm. week six weeks of rehearsal and then there's the four weeks of previews you're still working things out you're sorting out your character you're working the, the vocals into your voice and then you're into the run and before any the, the only really like substantial markers you have in your run are opening when you get reviews and then leading up to awards season, mm-hmm. you know? So those are the, the when people are evaluating, you see. But in a, one of these live performances, it's really, it's that, it's just that live performance. It's just, it's, and so you need to be ready by then. It's not, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you don't get a, you don't get a runway after opening night to kind of continue to be ready and get ready. You've got to be ready by then. So it changes the vocal conditioning of vocal preparation uh-huh. a little bit. Um and the level at which you need to be at by opening. But, um, but for the most part, it is, it, it's largely was structured like a theatrical development process. Mm-hmm. And you guys were not the production where they like aired the tech rehearsal, were you? No, that was my next, that, that was my next production. But uh-huh. to be, to be perfectly fair, what they do is we, well, most of the time on these live musicals on TV, what they'll do is they will do a full performance on Saturday uh-huh. and they will tape that. So it's live and the audience is there and they'll tape that. And then they will do the the, the live one on Sunday for the East Coast audience. Uh-huh. And then they will comp what goes out everywhere else. Uh-huh. So only the East Coast is getting an actual live. Uh-huh. Everybody else is getting a comp performance from the night before and the live feed. I love it. Um, all right, let's take a short break. And on the back end, we're going to talk a little bit about producing and advocacy as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. We are back with Brandon Victor Dixon. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about producing. So um, how did this all start? I'd love to hear about the founding of Walk, Run, Fly, which is your production company. But um, I'd also maybe love to hear a little bit about like, how do you define theatrical producing or what your role is as a, a theatrical producer? Uh, for me, the producing came as a natural extension of doing shows. Uh, I, I've, I've just, I've luckily been fortunate enough to do, uh, originate a number of shows. So I've been, you know, I've been able to bear close witness to the process of what it takes to create uh, and build a dynamic and successful Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, as I've <clears throat> kind of grown in my art, you know, you start out wanting to learn how to command your words and your notes, and then you want to command the scene and the song, and then you want to command the character, and then you want command over the message of the show and how you all mm-hmm. are operating at large. And so, you know, you, you're, you're, the depth at which you understand and want to implement your art just kind of grows as you grow and expand. And so as you're trying to think about each piece you need uh, you need to be plugged into the process in a different way. Cause now I'm thinking about, well, I want the piece to do this. I want the song and I want the scene uh-huh. to do this. Well, then I want, what if the lights could hit me here? Or what if I could levitate? What if I could, well, that will cost X and that will cost this. And uh-huh. all right, I got to convince the director to let me do, and I got to convince them. So then it became a, mo- a, a point of art. Right, how do I make myself an official part of these process so that I'm not having to manipulate or finagle my way that I can have a voice at the table. And I can say, this is what I think we should do and why I think we should do it. Mm-hmm. And not only that, so that after, you know, uh, uh, two, four, three months of putting your creative material into a show, integrating your own creative material into a show and then performing it for a year and then you leave and you're no longer getting paid by that creative material, but that show is continuing to generate money for years and years. Mm-hmm. You want to be a part of that. So, but producing was both about, wanting to have greater influence over the projects I was a part of, creative influence, uh, but also wanting to be able to benefit from the value of those things when that when that creativity is able to have success. Um, but also, you know, I very early on in my career was, has been have been able to be part of projects and walk into rooms um, that are that are rare. And I'm very fortunate in that way. And not all of my you know, colleagues and peers have the kind of access that I have, but they're exceptionally talented people, just as talented Mm -hmm. as I am. A lot of them are writers and creators. Um, And so I wanted to be able to help provide those opportunities for them as well. So that's, you know, that's the main impetus behind, you know, taking on my initial producing partner. You know, I brought him on because I wanted, I I believed in his talent and I wanted Mm -hmm. to connect him to the producers, the theater owners, the creatives that I was working with. And, uh, you know, I wanted to give him the opportunity to show what he could do, you know. Um, And now that I'm working on my own, I I, I continue that philosophy. I I continue to try and push that philosophy forward. And when you said, I I love you said, I can bear witness. Was there a conscious effort of like getting into rooms that actors don't always get into? How did you bear witness of some of the, those higher level conversations? Uh, you know, for me, there was not a, 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 a conscious effort or awareness to do it. It's something I found 
was happening as a result mm-hmm. of the kinds of creative rooms I was in and the kinds of creative partners that I was in. It's about how they welcomed me. Mm-hmm. You know, people like, it's about how people like Aubrey Lynch and Jeff Lee, who were the supervisors of the Lion King at the time, it was about how they took care of me and nurtured me through what was a very challenging process of the Lion mm-hmm. King. I shouldn't have booked the show. And I, 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 you know, it's almost a miracle that I survived the job in many ways, shape or form, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, people like uh, like Scott Sanders, the producer of The Color Purple, and Ali Willis and uh, Stephen Bray and Brenda Russell, who wrote it, they were very collaborative artists. They understood. They 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 gathered a group of of artists and performers whose expertise they knew had value in the creation of their project. When we went out of town for The Color Purple, uh, Marsha Norman, the book writer, threw out Act Two. And she rewrote an entire act to based on what we were all doing in the room there. They just really welcomed me into the process. And so as I continue to move forward, the Scottsboro boys, uh, John Kander and Susan Stroman and Tommy Thompson, I was like, they welcomed us into the process mm-hmm. as creative collaborators. And so it's, it's that level of inclusion, which is, does not always happen. Creative teams are not always like that. Mm-hmm. It's that level of, of welcoming and collaboration <clears throat> And then appreciation for the kindness and the grace and generosity I think I try to bring into creative spaces that make people want to have you around, want to work with you more, make people open the door to you when you just when you come to them and they say, I know, I know you only know me as an actor, but I'm a, I have a production company now. I want to produce work. And, and, and it's how you operate as a human being in these other spaces. As, it's the generosity with which you operate that then will create the space for these people to say, you know, I don't know you in that capacity, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to let you come in the door and talk to me about your idea. Oh, I heard you want to produce. Meet this person. Uh-huh. Uh, the, uh, Jeffrey Seller, the producer of Hamilton, was the first person to call me when he heard I become a producer. And he's like, talk to me about what you're doing. I like that project. How can I help you? Here's my general manager, Andy, Andy Jones. Like, talk to him about... And so that it, it, it's 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 that level of of, mm-hmm. of kind of operating has how I've looked at it. It's so cool. And and just to, for a like baseline definition for maybe some of our parents or and students who are not as familiar with what like what a producer what a production company does. What is that role as opposed to a director as opposed to a different leadership of a, of a theatrical production? A producer can be very broadly defined. Um, I think at its heart, the producer is the is the person responsible for the financial and administrative running of the production. So the producer is the person who's going to make sure the money comes in, whether it's their money or not. They're going to manage that money. They're going to put together. They're going to choose the director and the writer, and they're going to uh, put together the the general manager and the marketing department. And th- these are the pieces that are going to make the show run. So maybe a writer comes to a producer and says, hey, I have a project I want to do. And they pitch it to them. The producer's like, okay, great. Uh, who, who do we need to write the music? Or who do we want to direct it? Or what? And so like the producer will create great options for you, put together a creative team. Okay, we need, what's our first step? We need a reading. Uh, we just need to do it on a table. We'll do it in my living room. Okay, now we need a, an official equity 29-hour reading. All right, well, I'm going to go gather two or three investors. They're going to come to this table read in the living room. Now that they're inspired, they're going to put up the money. And now we're going to do an official reading. It's going to cost us $30,000. And we've got five, 10 people in the room. Now I've got to secure the rights to the other music that we want. But it, it, you, So you see the mm-hmm. producer is the person who has to 
really put together all the kind of minutia, the little pieces, uh, and create the space for the creatives to do their work. And was there anything, I mean, you've mentioned the econ or the plan econ major. Was there anything sort of skill set wise you felt like you didn't have at the way you started that you're like, I really need to learn this? Or was it all stuff that you're like, I can figure out how to do this. I'm, I'm already equipped to do the sort of production end of things. Oh, no, certainly. There, there was a lot that I've, I've had to learn and I'm continuing to learn. Um, uh, and, and there are various ways to do it. You know, a lot of times I take meetings with mm-hmm. producers whom I've worked with. And I'm like, this is what I'm getting into. Can you explain to me how this aspect of uh, profit sharing works? Uh-huh. How does the investment share work? How does the model work here? Okay, what if I do this? What can I offer X? Like, part of it has been about, you, you can't be afraid to ask questions. <clears throat> and it can be challenging. When you move into a new space, um, it, it, it can be really challenging because you have to ask questions to learn. But obviously, if you're, you have new ideas and new projects and you're asking people uh-huh. for money and things, then... You don't want to ask questions because you don't want these people to think you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Give me a lot of money. Also, what should I do with the money? Like, uh... <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and, and for me, I've had to, I have not done as much of these things as I try to encourage myself to do now. So when I talk to young people, I, I try to encourage them to do them sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. You know, em, em, embrace, embrace failure, embrace risk, embrace chaos. And hurl yourself into trying to do the things now because you have time to do a thing and fail. You have time to do a thing and succeed at it for a little while and then decide you don't like it and then abandon it completely and re-educate yourself entirely into a whole new thing. You know, your 20s, your 30s, it's just it's such a lot of time. And a lot of times we we are careful, we're overly careful because we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to miss X or miss Y. And so we won't do this or we won't do that or we'll, we'll hedge our bets or we'll have to do it. And you need to hurl yourself into the experience because there's time to make another choice if you decide you want to make another choice. So true. What about, you know, when you're producing something, let's say Hedwig, which was so successful, like, do you ever feel like a jealousy of the other half of your career? Like, do you ever feel like, hey, this is so great that the producing is going so well. What about me as an actor? I want to be stepping forward into that. Like, do you feel like they, how did they balance each other out, the two hyphens of, of producing and acting? And or does one ever feel like it's taking from the other? Um, that is a, that's a good question. I, I have, I have felt myself, um, I have felt that I have had too big a focus on the producing over the last couple of years. Oh no, this was not a note from me. Let's be clear. I wasn't being like, <laughs> you need to get back on stage, buddy. No, but what I'm saying is those thoughts, we do have yeah. those thoughts. Now I, for sure. I mean, I've tried to make sure that the producing work is well integrated with the, with the acting work. You know, I try to so that the strengths can strengthen each other. Um, but you know, I, I have found for myself, I was like, you know, I, I have found that I put too much energy into the producing side of things and I've needed to recalibrate and put more energy back into the, the, the acting side of things, particularly because I am not, I am, I am still, my career is very much in development still, like I'm still growing and building and my producing success is as a result of the strength of what I have built as an actor. That's, that's me. That's my currency. Mm -hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so I always have to remember that that is the engine, that is the fuel for the producing efforts. And so that has to be primary. And what does that mean? Because I love that. We talked to many artists who are kind of multi-hyphenates in different ways. They do what they write or produce or do other things. What does it mean when you say, hey, I got to put more energy toward acting? Like, what is that? How does that shift in your daily life as you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift some resources? Or how do you sort of uh, make a, an adjustment like that if you feel like one is getting too much attention? Part of it is an internal pivot. Part of it is just recognizing, okay, you have 
you have been focusing on your other partners in your producing world and your partner's projects and making sure this happens here and this goes there and um and uh and not putting as much focus on you know making that audition and hitting that audition and mm-hmm. meeting that casting director and showing up at that premiere for your you know for your acting and and I've been going to recognize this like I I have you I I have more traction mm-hmm. when I am I have more traction in the producing when I'm focused mm-hmm. on the acting because they're excited about me as an actor they appreciate what I can do as a producer but they're the excitement is the actor and that creates the other opportunity so sometimes it becomes an internal pivot and for me it's like if I started you, you start the new thing producing the production company and so then you start looking for projects and partners and you focus on building those things and producing is a long road. So it's a long period of development uh-huh. and, and and finding the resources and making sure you 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 can get there. And it, what you'll find is that as you continue to chase that project, you maybe leave the acting a little oh. bit behind, or you only seize what comes to you as opposed to going towards certain things. I was going to say the same thing. It feels like there's something about acting that often you know what, people aren't normally going to turn down an amazing audition or that, that kind of thing that's co- coming to them. But often the things that you have to come to that where you have to go. I could go to this opening night or not. I could practice my singing. I could, you know, things that are a little softer as opposed to like my email inbox, which says I need to answer this thing for a production. Someone owes me this or I owe them this or, you know, some of those harder sort of life things. I'd love to talk a little bit about your role as an advocate. Um, again, not to make you just do tons of definitions, but, but maybe I'd love to define at least from, from your perspective what advocating means, what it is, means to be an advocate, and maybe specifically that the We Are Foundation or the founding of, of We Are. Um, I think to advocate, which to advocate means to, to live in the world with grace and empathy and to uh, stand up for those who need support in, in, in their fight uh, mm-hmm. for enfranchisement for independence for uh for social acceptance for for personal confidence um whomever they are wherever they are in their in their journey in life in their search for who they are versus what they were told they were when they came into this world you know i Mm -hmm. think that's what advocacy is really about uh for me the we are foundation is a vehicle uh art for me is the most exponentially transformative force in this world you know uh, a poem, a song, a play can can change a person's perspective in a moment. Um, and so, you know, the We Are Foundation is, it works to use the power of art to bridge the gaps between communities by turning art into action. And so, um, and that can manifest in different ways. We came into existence during the last general election um, to really work in uh, lower income communities, to connect them to local election issues, uh, local electoral politics, and, you know, really just the energy connection of what are the challenges in my life, in my neighborhood, and how can I connect them to a functional element in the system before mm-hmm. me? Um, so that that's really what that's about. Um, but for me, you know, advocacy is a very, it's just a very human um role that uh we all must play and that's a lot of what my art is about a lot of the artistic projects i choose to engage in are about humanity and about bringing us closer together as human beings and helping us uh um, really uh reach a greater level of of connected human consciousness and and where does the art come in so in terms of like um elect the election work that you're doing around the most recent election 
how does how are you advocating through art? I mean, are the the students producing art? Are they seeing art? Or how how is the art wrapped up in the advocacy? Um, it, it manifests in different ways, but a lot of it is actually working with local community groups that are arts based. So, like mm-hmm. in Detroit, we work with the Mosaic Youth Theater. And what we'll do with them is we'll talk to the young students about the issues that are going on in their community and talk to them about about ways to affect change in those things. And then we'll create installations with different groups of local community groups that are that are um, events that bring people together to talk about the issues that are going on or to meet the local politicians so they can talk to them about what are going on in the local issues. So that, that's really kind of how we use it. I mean, I think so many people, when they become actors or artists in general, but especially, I think I know a lot of young actors say like, how I want to change the world with my art. I really want, I want to make the kind of art that changes the world. How do you feel like in terms of like theater itself, that responsibility, or where do you feel like that responsibility lies, uh, you know, in terms of the shows that are produced in, in, in terms of the actors in their productions or in terms of the messages of the shows? I guess I'd love to hear about like, if you look at a Broadway or if you look at a commercial musical theater, like where are we seeing that successfully and unsuccessfully today? I mean, you have to define success. Uh, uh, I think a, a, a meaningful piece of art that is trying to say something positive and inject something positive into the world, you know, if it, if it gets seen that, that, that can be a level of success, you know, so many things mm-hmm. get created and never get seen. Uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to define what success is when you're talking about art, because in, in, inherently our, uh, the success of art is its impact on the human being. Right. Uh, it's impact on the individual. Um, but for us, when we're talking about art, it's art and entertainment. Right. Which means art is a business. So we're dealing with the intersection of art and economics and they are they do not come. They do not compute. Um, and the more the economics uh, becomes integrated with the art, the more the art becomes limited <clears throat> and the more the art has limited chances to exist, uh, to sustain, to become a success, whether that's exposure to people or generate um, money. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, su- I suppose in this day and age, the most successful pieces are the ones that manage to spread social messages, but also manage to uh, you know, achieve a level of economics that they can spread across mm-hmm. the world and people will continue to, you know, you could, some people would argue this, but I wouldn't uh, argue against this, but I wouldn't, but, you know, Hamilton can be an example of that. You know, yep. they are, they, it talks a lot about social issues within the context of history, within the context of who has power, what does power mean? Uh, Hamilton also manages to, strip our founding fathers of the of the cultural mythology that we've endowed them with and we get to see these people as human beings uh with flaws uh but fighting for what they believe was right in the world and and kinds of and kind of gets to show us as as children as regular human beings that we too have the power to affect changes in our discourse and our democracy to mold the kind of world and government that we want to operate in um you know so I, I, it shows like this a strange loop uh, which is a very, which tells a very personal journey, um, but a very personal journey that involves a lot of social struggles that many individuals are dealing with uh, today. You know, um, not not just about uh, our sexuality, but 
uh, how people see us in our sexuality, mm-hmm. who we are, and our and, and how our dreams manifest through that. So, uh, you know, success is 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 hard to define. Um, but I definitely see, I definitely see producers out there looking to create to produce work that is about the human condition and that and that spreads uh, messages that help uh, give us insight into other worlds. A band's visit other cultures mm-hmm. uh but that resonate with our own well and but you're talking about in the the sort of dissonance at least between like art and commerce in yes. at least in the current broadway structures of things like obviously hamilton is incredibly successful financially you know sort of successful in terms of uh, basically always rent was one of those rent was one of those socially meaningful but incredibly economically successful. And I think some would argue, though, that a show like Hamilton was not ideal in terms of its... I wouldn't necessarily make this argument, but not ideal in terms of its its impact of, you know, in some ways it it does does uphold supremacy in sort of the way that it... Some people would argue against it. I was like, no, I'm not one of those people because I see... You can't you, you can't do everything in every show. You can't say everything in every show. And you also can't say and do everything in the same way. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, for me, Hamilton is subversive. Uh, Hamilton is an insurgent. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hamilton, it, it, it creates a playing field to discuss a lot of things. Uh, Hamilton does not, it's not an encyclopedia. So yes, you can't just run into Hamilton and then walk away from there and, and say, that's American history. What you have to do is like, oh, this is interesting. I want to know more. And then when you do that, then you get into the details and you, and you learn more about uh, you know more about the Schuylers and and how the, all their money is from slave owning, and, and you learn that Hamilton himself, you know, he he engaged in 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 the financial dealings of slave, and you you get into this stuff. But the point is to have a window into it. Yep. Um, and for me, Hamilton specifically strips away the veneration and the mythology, so that we can look at the flaws of these people. Well, and it is really difficult to make. You can make art in a basement that nobody wants to see. That may be so incredibly politically accurate and so many have all the things you want but then also to actually get those butts and seats you know it's always a miracle to get you know to yeah. make a hamilton to make something like that that people want to see is its I own you know, artistic miracle um all right are we ready to play our special game our special game this is built around the fact that i don't know if you realize this but you're an o away from an egot in a nominations if we count nominations that you're from an egot nom you're one oscar nomination away right so our special game here, we're going to try to, to pitch, I'm going to pitch you some different ideas to get you an Oscar nomination so that you can be an EGOT nom. Does that sound like it's going to be fun? Sounds like it's going to be a great time. We'll see what happens here. Okay. So what I tried to pick was some uh, um, very easy to win categories or easy to be nominated categories, not as much popular uh, um, categories here. Okay. Um, and we're, we're going to try to, I'm going to try to pitch you a best animated short film. Okay. So we're going to try to get an Oscar nomination in the best animated short film category. Here's my starting pitch. A, a, a kind of a schoolhouse rock situation, but it's for like baby boomers and it like explains TikTok. Does that make <laughs> sense to us? So it's like, here's what I'm going to try to get you to produce for me. It's like a schoolhouse rock. It's, it's going to have some, a little beat to it. It's going to have a little fun, but it's going to be all like, or it's like pronouns, things that like old people don't understand. And we're going to explain it schoolhouse rock style. Do you think <laughs> we could get a best animated short film nomination. I absolutely think that's doable. Oh, absolutely. That's All right. So now I'm going to throw them to you. I'm going to throw a couple ideas and we'll see what you can come up with now that's going to live in the a best documentary short subject. What's like the best, what's something that's happened recently that we could come up with 
that's going to be a, a, we're going to get a best documentary short subject and Oscar nomination. Best documentary short subject. Um, we would do a documentary short on uh, on the rise of Coleman Domingo. Oh, okay. Yes, from theater to film. And and do we have this cast? We're going to do it kind of meta. So like Coleman will be playing a version of Coleman. Uh-huh. You know, we'll, we'll do that. But then everybody else around him will be different. Okay, great. We'll use like some age makeup or whatever. We'll use the, the technology that we got. Well, you know, it's a, it's a short and it's not a long, you know, Coleman's rise is like, you know, Coleman's been around for a while, but his but but his transitioning rise has been like this last eight ten years. So like mm-hmm. we won't have to really age Coleman, but we we can really focus on the diversity of this this theater, uh, this this theater, uh, what's the word? The specter of the theater uh-huh. who then is able to manifest in all these ways once he's exposed to the world. I love it. All right. So now, if that doesn't work, what, what what's a best adapted screenplay? This was my other idea. I think something in the best adapted screenplay world. Where it's like, what's something that's happened? Uh, um, it could be IP that already exists. It could be a sequel to something. How are we going to get ourselves a best adapted screenplay nomination? Look, I would I would say the 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 two books that I would ever want to adapt into screenplay. And this is going to sound random, but they are uh, a kids' book called Maniac McGee. Maniac McGee. I've never heard of this. Okay, what, what's this? Um, it's about this orphan kid who's like he's just like a, kind of a gifted runner. He's this orphan kid, and he ends up... It's really just about him trying to find his place. And he finds himself caught between the east side and the west side of this town. And, like, the uh-huh. west side is the white side, and the east side is the black side. He's a young white kid orphan. And, you know, he's living at kind of, like, a local band shell at a, at a, at a, at a baseball park. And there's kind of, like, a, the groundskeeper takes care of him for a little while until he dies in the winter. And then the kid's living at the zoo until a young girl finds him. So he's li- he, he, then she takes him home. So he starts living with the Jackson family, this black girl and her family on the east side. And like people are treating them weird because they got this white kid staying with them. And he strikes up this rivalry slash friendship with like one of the black athletes in the town called Mars Bar J- Jackson. Uh-huh. And like, you know, so like, and they, they, they race each other, but he beats Mars Bar. So they get into a fight. So he runs out of the town. And he ends up in the west side. And then he's with like a family. So it's just like, it's a very interesting story about a young kids, but also about social dynamics. And it's just like, it's just like one of my favorite books. You absolutely should produce this regardless of this game. And regardless of getting the Oscar, you should produce this. Newberry award winning book. Hey, now. All right. And you said, and there's another one too. You said Manny McGee. And what was the other one? This other one is called uh, Alana, the first adventure by Tamora Pierce. And it's a fantasy book about um, a young woman and her twin brother. And she is being sent off to, you know, like the convent to learn how to become a lady. And he's going to be sent off to become a knight. But he wants to be a wizard and she wants to become a knight. So on the road, they cut their hair so nobody can tell them apart. Uh-huh. And she gets taken to the castle. And she she disguises herself as a boy and trains as a squire. And he ends up going to the monastery to become a sorcerer. And uh, this integrates beautifully into our Schoolhouse Rock explanation of gender. So it's just like all becomes one one piece of art when we put it all together. There we are. There we are. Um, I love it. I think you should make both of these things, all three of the things. Make the Coleman Domingo thing too. I think uh, it sounds like... We did come up with some very good ideas, my friend. I'm just that was five minutes of pitch session. I'm just saying, like, if you're this close, you're th- you got the E, the G, and the T. We guys need an O nom. That's all we need. And then you're and you got nom. That's pretty good. Um, I just want to wrap up in terms of uh, you know, 
in the past couple of years, of course, the business has gone through so much, and and now we discover your your producing is rising above your uh, acting, which of course makes sense in the past couple of years. But um, where do you see this crazy business going? Where do you see the next five years of of you know what has shifted and what maybe will continue to shift um, in the next you know five ten years? I, I really don't know. Um, you know, I think that uh, the economics will really determine where the business goes. And I, I think that that'll be the economics of the country, our global economics. Uh, because particularly with theater, you know, because theater is so expensive to make. Um, and the more it is, the more expensive it is to make theater, the the fewer risks producers are willing to take, um, the harder it is for diversified works to break through. And the same thing in television, you know, we've had a television and film, we, we've seen, um, you know, really the expansion of distribution platforms with streaming networks over the last couple of years. So you've seen an explosion of content, um, but we're we're starting to see a consolidation of those platforms and also particularly in the film space, um, what can and cannot make it into theaters. You know, we've, we've for a long time been in the space of big brands, big tent poles, um, uh, and those mean the only things that can make it into theaters and you know, we're, we're kind of still operating in that space. So we're going, we're going to have to see hopefully a market for smaller three to $5 million films will, mm-hmm. will open up and will continue to maintain. And, you know, um, and ideally if, if, uh, theater can become subsidized in some way. So it's a bit more affordable, but those are, I don't, I really don't know. Cause those are yep. those, the challenges that exist are, are not getting better right yeah, so true. Um, all right, my last question to you is just, if there's a young artist out there who wants to be a Brandon Victor Dixon human being, uh, what advice would you have to that person? What advice would you have to a young 17-year-old, 19-year-old, 21-year-old who's thinking, I kind of want to be Brandon when I grow up? Um, I would encourage them to to train a lot, you know, act a lot. Make acting your number one thing you train. Uh, you know, your voice and your body, those are skills that you have to coach and develop, but what you're doing with those skills is you are acting. So the acting needs to be your primary tool, your primary resource. Um, Always keep going. Do not be afraid to ask for help. And like I said before, uh, lean into fear, lean into failure, lean into chaos, because they're only potential things. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's really, it's the fear of those things that prevent you from uh, fully embracing experiences. And if you fully embrace experiences, you're going to succeed more than you fail. Um, and you're going to find that whatever you gain through that, even if it doesn't uh, end up exactly the way you want it to, you're going to be so much better on the other side and you'll have time to start again. Such good advice. Um, okay. We want to give you an opportunity to plug anything that you want to plug. Um, I know you're here specifically talking a little bit about MacGyver, the musical. Yes, I am here to talk about MacGyver, the musical and the album that we've recently recorded um, that will be available. I know you're going to provide the availability information, but uh, MacGyver, the musical is a, a great new musical uh, that has been developed and that is that is coming to a town near you. And one of the things that's great about MacGyver, the musical, and I don't know, you know if people aren't familiar with the MacGyver TV show from the from the eighties really should you really should get involved. And then they've done a remake, uh, obviously that played through twenty twenty one. But it's about the, ingen- the ingenuity of one individual. And you know what's really cool about the show is that you know uh, we cast the lead role in MacGyver 
out of the audience for every performance. So before the show, there's a 10 minute audition. This is just like a thing like, you know, there's something happened and the actor playing MacGyver can't make it to the, the, the show tonight. So someone from the audience has to has to play MacGyver. And three or four volunteers will act a line, sing a line, or dance something, and let the audience decide by applause who gets to be MacGyver that night. And um, you know, we've had MacGyvers of all genders ranging in age from eighteen to eighty-five. So it's uh, it's a really cool project. Um, we've recorded a wonderful cast album that I hope everybody will check out. And uh, uh, yeah, super cool, super also, cool. The best man final chapters on Peacock streaming right now. You know, uh, I featured in that, and I hope hopefully y'all enjoy that as well. If people want to hear more from you, or if they just want to follow all that you're doing, where would you want them to be following you along? Uh, you can find me at brandonvictordixon.com and um, at Brandon V Dixon as all of my socials. At Brandon V Dixon, awesome. We'll put all of that in the show notes. Brandon, thanks for the time today. It was such a, a joy. No, thank you. My pleasure. Oh, yes. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Brandon Victor Dixon. Uh, I thought he was so thoughtful and eloquent. I mean, you can really see how his intelligence impacts his art making, both as an actor and a, and a producer. And, and he left lots of great nuggets for takeaways, so it's going to be hard for me to even pick just a couple. Um, I do think there's something really interesting in going deeper about the differing approaches for film theater, where you get to rehearse for weeks but only get one or two shots at it, versus Broadway, where you get many, many shots, versus film, where you don't have as much rehearsal, and you're leading up to that filming, which is a singular thing, but you then get those multiple takes. So there's something really interesting there. We could do almost a whole episode diving um, deep into that, and maybe we will. Um, one thing I did want to highlight um, from his definition of advocacy was just his use of the word grace. Um, it's something you'll hear next episode for those who listen to the college episodes with Michael McElroy from Michigan. Talks about it a lot in next week, especially in sort of the EDIB conversation. Um, and it's just a word that's been buzzing around my head for the past few years a lot. Um, the power of grace. Uh, I think personally for me growing up non-religiously, I didn't really understand the power of that word. I would hear it kind of in the context of like, graceful movement or a graceful person and I would almost think of that as like a delicate person or you know it was it was positive but it was sort of a there was a weakness to it um but I think understanding it in the spiritual sense of empathy and forgiveness you know grace to yourself and grace with others it makes you really understand the power of that word um and I think it's a great word for artists as we embark on our necessarily messy work. I mean, to be able to lead with grace, meaning you are not insensate to your surroundings, nor are you overly reactive, right? There's so much power in being able to say, I can go through the world gracefully. Um, you know, it evokes listening and empathy, of course. If you're a graceful person, you have to be able to take in others, but also a strong enough sense of self to not be washed away by others. Um, so just an interesting word to meditate on here in January of 2023, thinking about grace um, as we live our lives, especially as artists. And the last thing I did want to highlight from our conversation was just this really smart idea uh, of what Brandon talked about in terms of defining success. Um, in this case, it was about shows. You know, I asked him a super broad question about like which shows were successfully striking that balance between art and commerce was kind of the nature of my question. And I think he very smartly threw it back to me and noting, well, you have to define what is the success for that production and for, for those producers and for those artists, right? You know, Lion King's incredible financial success is amazing, but it's very different than maybe the artistic success of Strange Loop, right? And they're judged on very different parameters and they might have had very different goals. Um, and I think this is really important as artists to try to define what success looks like for each of us. 
I'm going to say this, especially for our older artists listening, you know, often if you're still in high school, that first big hurdle is getting into college. So I'm going to ask you to write that mission statement for yourself about how you want to get into college. And then maybe beyond that, you have the dream of Broadway or you have a sense, a more vague sense of what's coming after, but you're not totally sure what that looks like. And that really is okay. Still fine if you have a, a better sense of that early on, but okay if you don't um, at 17, 18. But then as you near graduation from college, the more specific that definition of success looks like to you will be a helpful guide for you as you then meet with industry people. And like we talked about with Grace, it'll help you not get washed away in what they define success as, right? Because I think, you know, as you're meeting with industry people, it will kind of auto revert to making as much money as humanly possible, right? If you don't have a different definition of success, it's going to mean financial success for the most part. Um, but I think maybe most importantly for our 24 to 30 year old listeners, there's something really important in redefining success for yourself at 27 and then at 33 and then at 38 or whatever, right? Or for our 50 year old listeners, right? It will inevitably change, right? And there's power in allowing the definition of success to change or, or you know, as Krista Rodriguez put it, the dream to expand. But you do still want to have some control of the steering wheel, right? You're not totally just letting it change into what it, wants, it might change into. You're able to actually listen to yourself and go, okay, right now at 33, what do I want? And what do I want to be putting my time, my energy, um, you know, my resources into, right? Redefining what that success is for yourself, it'll help you consciously invest in what you want your career to be and will help, you know, avoid your career feeling like something that's happening to you and will be a little more like something that you're actively making happen. Well, that is another fantastic episode of Mapping the College Audition, if I do say so myself. Please, for the love of everything holy, have the grace to leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast platform of your choice. You can also DM us with your Oscar-nominatable ideas to at Mapping the College Audition and or follow MTCA on all of our social platforms, which will be found in our show notes, where you'll also find a link to our website to help with any individual college audition preparation. To my young artists out there mapping their journeys, how many of you actually know what Schoolhouse Rock is? Have I suddenly become old? I'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.